You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Visit bpn.fm to discover more. No matter who you are or where you come from, every hopeful actor has to go through the same growing pains and learning-on-the-job stresses of this business. They come with hard-fought lessons, humorous moments, and everything in between. And today's guest has built a career from such experiences. Hi, my name is Luke Yankee. I am originally from New Canaan, Connecticut, and I wear a lot of different hats in the entertainment industry. I'm a playwright, director, producer, sometimes actor, and a college professor. While Luke continues to wear many hats as an artist, it all comes from a singular talent and drive that he saw firsthand in his mother, the Oscar, Drama Desk, Golden Globe, and Emmy-winning actress Eileen Heckert who also received a special Tony Award honor for excellence in theater. Luke has written a biography and a one-man show about her life and has received his own awards for writing plays. He also found his calling as a teacher and coach and speaks to some of that in the bonus Final Five questions. But in this episode, he shares stories from his years as a performer, how he got hooked on theater and the various ways he has handled himself when things didn't quite go as planned. I got very impatient with the fact that they weren't responding and they weren't really laughing. Uncharacteristic of me. But I felt like my art was not being appreciated. So I started trimming some stories and cutting some corners and all of that. And and I was kind of frustrated afterwards. Welcome to the award-winning podcast, Why I'll Never Make It. I'm your host, Patrick Oliver-Jones, an actor and singer for more than 30 years. Every other week, I talk with fellow creatives who bring us stories from their own life of personal struggles and professional hardships with lessons we can all learn from. The website is whyillnevermakeit.com, where you can subscribe, donate, and find past episodes. Again, that's Why I'll Never Make It, when you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say, your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. 
Welcome, Luke. It is so good to meet you. I'm grateful to have you on the show today. I'm grateful to be here, Patrick. Thank you so much for asking me. Well, you know, unlike me, you have had a storied career working with and, and being around the who's who of television and film, you know, including your own mother. But, uh, but there is one thing that we do share in common, and that is hosting and talking to actors and creatives about the business. Yes. And you created and hosted a seminar series called Conversations on Craft. And one of your guests was actually a guest on this podcast, Michael Learned. Uh, and, I yes. adore Michael. Yes, yes, yes. She, she's wonderful. And you've also talked to other people like Ed Asner and Harriet Harris, among other guests. How did you enjoy these conversations on craft that you did? You know, it, it was really wonderful, Patrick. I had such a great time doing them. And my favorite story, what I would do is I tried to make it kind of like inside the actor's studio, but I would have two people from uh, two different disciplines for each show. And my favorite one was Ed Asner and Mark Rydell. And it became Mark Rydell, of course, who directed On Golden Pond and uh, The Rose and so many amazing films. Ed and Mark were like these two crusty old vaudevillians trying to outdo each other. And we couldn't even get them out of the dressing room. They were kibitzing so much. And finally, Ed said, yeah, I have a story I want to tell to kick things off when we get out there. OK, fine, Ed. So they get out there and Ed says, the last time I worked with Mark Rydell was in 1967 in an episode of The Virginian. I fell off the horse. I damn near broke my neck and the son of a bitch has never hired me again since. <laughs> and that was how it started. <laughs> I mean, it was hysterical. The two of them were amazing together. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's really good whenever you have performers or creatives, whenever they just want to be open and just share these stories that you've never heard before. It really is great to just, as you say, get this inside studio, behind the scenes look at the, the life that we do. Well, of course, Patrick, I sort of had that in spades because growing up as the son of Eileen Heckert, and uh, from the time I was very little, I would sit in my parents' living room where my mother would be entertaining Teresa Wright or Mary Tyler Moore or the playwright Robert Anderson. And, and I would just sit there and soak up these stories like a sponge. And my older brothers really didn't have any interest in them, but, but I was just absolutely captivated. And uh, the, you know, the, the grown-up talk didn't bother me at all. And you know, sometimes they would think to apologize when they dropped a four-letter word. Most of the time they didn't. <laughs> But uh, but it was just it, it was incredible. And I, I just it, it gave me such a rich fabric to draw on that I still do. And it, it was really extraordinary. Did it feel any pressure coming from, you know, from your mother and all these other people that you were around? Was there any pressure that you needed to rise to a certain level yourself? That's a really good question, Patrick. And actually, when I first started acting and I studied acting at Juilliard, but when I first started acting professionally, there was a certain amount of pressure because even though I had a different last name, uh, Luke Yankee is a rather unique name. So many times when I would go into a casting director's office, they would know that I was the son of. And I felt like they expected more of me because I, you know, th there was kind of an undue pressure on me, not from my family, but from outsiders. And I think that's one of the reasons, one of many reasons, really, that I transitioned from acting uh, fairly early on into directing and, and writing and producing, because I didn't feel that same sense of competition. Um, so it just, it, it made it a bit easier in that regard. 
Well, we're actually going to be talking about your acting career with this first story. And it's it's actually kind of a compilation of some of the shows that you did early on, like between the ages of 19, 22, when you were just starting out in the business. And each is an example of the unexpected nature of this business and how sometimes we just never know how an audience is going to respond to our performance. But in one show, you played a talking horse. In another one, you played a, a Polish peasant. And then you also toured with a play about teen pregnancy. All, all, all very different, very different. So in this first show with the talking horse, you say that you were mauled by the kids. What, what exactly happened here? <laughs> so there was a, a very well-respected Broadway producer named Burry Frederick. And she did uh, a number of Tom Stoppard plays on Broadway, a whole lot of things. And she took over the Candlewood Summer Theater in uh, upstate Connecticut, which was not too far from where he lived. And I had just been accepted to Juilliard for that fall. And for that summer, my summer job was that uh, she had bought, June Havoc was a dear family friend. And, you know, being the old vaudevillian that she was, baby June, you know, um, June had this one person uh, horse costume and the front legs were like stilts. And so, and I would hunch over and I would, and of course the horse was called the Duke of Havoc. And and so uh, before the kitty matinees at the Candlewood Summer Theater, I would go out and the the shoes were like hooves and I wore, you know, uh, brown velvet pants. And and so I'm hunched over like this and the front legs were like stilts. And so I would sort of trot out there for the shows and say, well, hello, boys and girls, I'm the Duke of Havoc and would do this whole routine to sort as sort of a warm up act for the kids. Well, there was one week where they had bust in a bunch of inner city kids from Spanish Harlem through the Fresh Air Fund. And these kids saw me clumping out of the well, hello, boys and girls. They came down the hill like it seemed like they were swarming like a plague of locusts. And they're all screaming, let's get the horse. And they start coming up and beating the shit out of me. They were kicking me and punching me. So I clomped back into the box office as quickly as I could. And I'm talking out of the eye hole going, you're, you're going to do something. These kids are beating a crowd on me. Oh, well, we can't let anything to happen. The horse costume. Well, the hell about the horse costume? I'm worried about me. They're worried about the horse costume. Brilliant. Brilliant. Oh, my so, gosh. So they sent out this um, very inexperienced guy from the box office. So what would happen? He would stand next to me and a kid would suddenly sock me. And then he'd go, don't smack the horse, please. And <laughs> And somebody would kick me and he'd say, John, kick the horse, please. And it did absolutely no good. <laughs> and I thought, and I'm going to be a Juilliard in the fall. And this is the way I'm being treated. <laughs> oh, my God. Well, it was a moment. Right. I, I love that you can laugh about it now, but you're being like pummeled by kids. Yes. yes in this costume oh where I really couldn't move. <laughs> well, I, the costume was at least protecting you physically from a Not lot. Not of... really. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. Well, it sounds like the next show where you were a Polish peasant wasn't quite so physical-ish. Because, well. yeah, because you had a few things instead of being pummeled with fists and feet, you had other things pummeled at you. Yes, yes. Um, I, I was dating a Jewish guy at the time named Stephen Katz, and I was totally smitten with him. And he was touring with a children's theater show about the history of Jerusalem. Now, you know, this tall, 
blonde goy. I mean, what did I know about the history of Jerusalem? But um, one of the actors left and they needed somebody to take over. And I thought, oh, this is great. It was an equity theater for young audiences, TYA tour. And I thought, great, I can get my insurance weeks if I do this, if I do like seven performances or something was what I needed to get my week. So it was all about the insurance weeks. I'm playing Theodore Herzl, the founder of Jerusalem. I'm playing a Polish peasant named Shloimi. All these roles I had no business playing. And I'm doing my best thinking it's all for the insurance. And we would take this into places like, I remember there was one day we were doing it in, uh, in a yeshiva. And these little Jewish boys... Now, for us goys, remind us what a yeshiva is. Okay, if I'm correct about this, and I may not be, it's like where young Jewish boys go to be instructed in Judaism. Um, So these little boys, and they had the payas, you know, the curls and the yarmulkes and everything, and we're doing this performance, and they were literally sitting there in the front row with bags of cheese doodles, and they were so bored with the show, they were hurling cheese doodles at us during the performance. So here I am doing this speech as Theodore. I'm Theodore Herschel, and let me talk to you about the founding of Jerusalem. And they're her- they're pummeling me with cheese doodles. Oh, <laughs> oh my gosh. Oh, my the gosh. The real kicker is, as I said, I had to do seven performances to get my insurance weeks, which is the only reason I was doing it. The director, who had been away because it had been out touring for a long time, she actually came and saw my sixth performance and was like, this guy is so totally miscast. He's all wrong for this show. I'm not letting him perform anymore. So I was, I didn't even get my insurance weeks because she only let me, she wouldn't let me go on for the seventh performance. Oh my gosh. You were that bad. You were- I, I was, I was terrible. Oh my gosh. That's crazy. <laughs> so this third show that you did about teen pregnancy. So the audience had a, I guess, an unexpected reaction to this very deep conversation about teen pregnancy. What happened here? So it was an organization called Plays for Living that did plays with a social message. And it was this play about teen pregnancy. And I was the boyfriend uh, of this young girl um, who, you know, I was trying to pressure her into having sex with me on a school field trip like the following week. And I kept saying things like, Linda, promise? (laughs) And, and of course, her best friend had already gotten pregnant. So she's like, you shouldn't do this, et cetera, et cetera. So um, uh, we were doing it at, a again, a really rough inner city school. Uh, I think it was in Harlem or something. And there was this big African-American girl who was clearly like a, a ringleader or something for this group. And, and so we're doing this play and the kids, you know, in any of the tender scenes, the kids are laughing hysterically. And so we're trying to play this very tender scene and this big bruiser of a girl who was, like I said, really carried some authority there. She stands up in the middle and she says, shut up, this be touching. And they, they were quiet as, as mice for the rest of the show. So at least you had one person, the, the, I guess the most important person. She got up. it. Yeah. yeah, she stood up for you. <laughs> Oh my God. Yeah. I mean, uh, children's performances. I mean, when you're, when I've done those school matinees and those kind of things, they either go one of two ways. Either the kids are kind of enthralled by the story because it's new or funny or whatever it is, or kind of what you had where they're just giggling and they're inappropriate and they're not, they, they would rather be anywhere else, except they're just glad to be out of class. That's all they care about. Exactly. But that's what we all do. And we're starting out, you know, 
We all, it, it's funny. I mean, my mother, when she was very young, did a commercial for a Jello tapioca pudding. And this would have been like 1948 or something, where she's overacting up a storm. And it's just like, Jello. <laughs> and so I put together a compilation of her whole career as a Christmas gift for her one year when I had first gotten a VHS and you know, very primitively done, but nonetheless. And and so she's like, and and so I started with the Jello commercial and then ended with her acceptance speech for the Academy Award for Butterflies Are Free. And and she's like, Well, darling, I I'm very touched by this gift, but why would you start with that awful Jello commercial? I said, no, it's so encouraging to young actors because the fact that someone could start off so terrible and overacting so badly and go on to win an Academy Award, that says something. Right, there's hope for all of us. Absolutely. (laughs) Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. getting into story number two this is where you kind of dish on not not only your mother but you dish on all these people that you've gotten to know your one-man show called diva dish and you've toured it all over the country including some retirement homes and you say that in one particular performance at a retirement home you decided to cut corners because you thought the the audience was bored. So what exactly is this show about? And then we'll get into how you cut the corners. Thank you. This kind of segues quite nicely from the last story where you're never quite sure, you know, how the audience is responding. So, um, uh, as I said, my mother had these amazing stories and, and I would just kind of sit at her feet, as I said, and, and drink all these in. And after she passed away, Patrick, I realized that I was the keeper of the flame. I was the only one who really knew all of these amazing stories. So it's a whole, it's called Diva Dish, as you say, and it's a whole multimedia presentation where I talk about Ethel Merman teaching me how to make a martini at age age 10, Paul Newman giving me acting lessons in the parents, in my parents' living room, fielding calls from reporters at age 13, the night my mother won the Oscar. And, uh, and I show clips of, you know, many of her film clips and tell stories about her with Marlena Dietrich and Betty Davis. And it's, it's very fun. And that became the precursor for my book about her, my memoir, Just Outside the Spotlight. So I've done it all over the country for, mm, boy, at at the point this story takes place, at least 10 years. Mm. And I was doing the story in uh, a retirement home. And these people were, um, they were very quiet. And a lot of times when you have that sort of audience they can be because sometimes they're infirmed or, you know, you have no idea what's going on with them. Well, I was, um, I got very impatient with the fact that they weren't responding and they weren't really laughing, uncharacteristic of me, but I got impatient with the fact, you know, felt like my art was not being appreciated. So I started trimming some stories and cutting some corners and all of that. And, and I was kind of frustrated afterwards. So I was talking to some of the the people and there was this one lady in a wheelchair who waited and waited and waited to speak to me. And she said, my son hasn't spoken to me in over 15 years. 
And the fact that you would honor your mother this way by carrying on her legacy, you have no idea what you just did for me. And I got down on my hands and knees and I put my arms around her and I gave her a big hug. And I just said to myself, boy, I will never cut corners on this show again. Because you you never know how your work impacts someone. And you just never know, even if they aren't responding. I mean, you just, it's... It, it was a huge lesson to me, and and she and I hugged each other for a long time and both cried, and it was uh, it was a pivotal moment for me. Yeah, it, it's a reminder. I mean, it's a bit cliche to say, "Well, you can't hear a smile," you know, and, yeah. and we get that. But but at the same time, it's it's so true that there. I mean, in a retirement home, I guess you you can actually kind of see their faces a bit more than if you're on stage doing a sure. show. But at the same time, you don't know what they're thinking. You don't know how they're processing. And certainly, with with an audience that's in in a dark theater, you you just don't know. And so you have yeah. to, as you say, you have to just remind yourself to give that 100 percent, no matter what. Well, and and the thing that I do, Patrick, and especially, you know, since it is a one-person show and it's just me up there, uh, when I would get particularly nervous, maybe there were some celebrities in the audience at various times or something like that, I would just look at myself in the mirror before I would go on stage and say, just give the gift. Don't judge how it's going to be received. Just give the gift. And I would assume that obviously you're performing this, you know, diva dish, but at the same time, you've been a director. I assume you've taken that lesson as a director as well as you, you know, impart and try to bring a show together to make sure that every moment is at 100%. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I, you know, I always say I got some of my best acting lessons in my parents' living room. And uh, because, I mean, from the time I was doing children's theater at, at age 12, uh, my mother would, you know, come to see my performances and critique me like I was Laurence Olivier. Uh, but it certainly made me tougher. But that, that's another whole story. But but the point is, is that, um, you know, as a director, having been an actor for so long, uh, I'm very sensitive and, and I'm very much aware of the process and that every actor has their own unique process. And and one of your jobs as a director is to find a way to tap into that and to speak their same language, whether you're speaking the same language as the designers or the actors. I mean, it's a uh, uh, I, I learned that as a director talking to designers, you know, you may see a scene as angry and intense and they see it as jagged and crimson, but you're talking about the same thing. Yeah. Uh, so just learning how to get into into other people speaking is certainly an important part of of success in this business, what, whatever hat you're wearing at the moment. Well, as a director, you did get to work with your mother. Obviously, you know her very well. You directed her in Driving Miss Daisy. What was it like telling your mother what to do on stage? <laughs> it was not easy. Uh, I can't I can't imagine it was. Oh, my gosh. I mean, you know, Eileen Heckert was tough on Mike Nichols, let alone her own son. And, um, uh, you know, of course, everybody in the cast was aware, but we said that, okay, in rehearsals, I will call you Eileen and we'll try to keep it as professional as we can. I mean, I didn't exactly want to say, mommy, could you please cross stage left? <laughs> so, so, um, but she was so, uh, she actually called a dear family friend. And um, we had many battles in the first couple of days. I mean, she was really tough on me. And she called a, a friend of the family's a set designer named Ken Lewis, a, a very dear friend. And she said, uh, Ken, I'm just so afraid he's not going to be any good. Mm -hmm. And he said, okay, Eileen, well, you've had enough 
weak directors over the years that if he's not, you know how to compensate, but why not give him the benefit of the doubt? Maybe he'll surprise you. So from then on, she stopped fighting me on everything and gave me the benefit of the doubt. And I found this out two years after she died. Ken told me that two days before the show opened, she called him and she said, Ken, I'm not just saying this because I'm his mother. He's good. He's really good. And of course, she could never tell me that. And like I said, I, I learned that two years after her death. But uh, uh, but yeah, George Abbott was there on opening night. And one of the greatest thrills of my life is seeing my mother get a standing ovation at the Coconut Grove Playhouse for playing Miss Daisy in where I had directed her. Mm. Yeah, yeah, that must have been a thrill for you. But at the same time, like you said, there was that pressure of mommy's on stage and I'm directing her, you know? Yeah, well, and not just mommy. I mean, Eileen Heckert. Right. Not just mother, yeah. but icon of the stage and screen. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh -huh. Someone who did not suffer fools gladly. Yeah. <laughs> In any arena. With that approach, obviously, you didn't know what was going on behind the scenes as she was trying to like, okay, I'll give you the benefit of the doubt. But did you feel a shift? Did you feel, okay, I can now be a director. I, I now have a bit more reins to control this. Well, actually, I had, um, I had directed the show previously. Uh, out in uh, Players Theater Columbus, an equity theater in Columbus, Ohio, which was my mother's hometown. And she was supposed to do that one and then got a TV thing. So um, uh, I was determined to to direct her in this someplace. So this was a mark of me as a young director, uh, because Frances Helm, the actress who had played it out in Ohio, was a friend of mom's. So I felt that gave me the liberty, so stupid, to say, you know, Eileen, there was this moment that Francis used to do with a hat pin. And as she, just before she made that cross, she was sort of, she would sort of punctuate the line by sticking in the hat pin. And so, so about the second or third time I said this, she said, you've now mentioned this hat pin several times. In the first place, I'm not a hat pin kind of actress. <laughs> and in the second place, if you think Francis was so fucking wonderful in the part, why don't you just fire me and hire her? I thought, oh, oh my God. Oh, oh, did I put my foot in it? So I said, I'm sorry, Eileen. I will never mention Francis or the hat pin again. Thank you. So time goes on. <laughs> we get through the process. We get into... Um, we get into tech rehearsals and she's doing the cross. And all of a sudden, before the cross, she goes with the hat pin. And she stops and she says, is that what you wanted with the hat pin? <laughs> and I said, uh, yes, thank you, Eileen. That was perfect. Oh, gee, oh, I'm big a hat pin. <laughs> oh, what a trip. What a trip. Oh, it, it was an experience. Yes. <laughs> now, in every episode, you get three stories. But if you want bonus segments with extra audition stories and the final five questions about lessons learned and what making it really means, then what you have to do is subscribe to WinMe at whyillnevermakeit.com. You just click subscribe there or here in the show notes, give this podcast a little money, and you'll get the full episodes with all the stories and bonus segments included. And another benefit of subscribing is that you won't have to listen to any ads either.
I'm Victoria Cash. Thanks for calling the Lucky Land Hotline. If you feel like you do the same thing every day, press 1. If you're ready to have some serious fun, for the chance to redeem some serious prizes, press 2. We heard you loud and clear. So go to LuckyLandslots.com right now and play over 100 social casino-style games for free. Get lucky today at LuckyLandslots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. Well, now that we get into this third story, okay, this one just cracks me up just reading about it. Because first off, okay, so you're doing summer stock in a barn. Which yes. isn't really that uncommon. There are, no. there are several barn theaters around the country. It, it certainly happens. But in this particular production, you were doing the play Close Ties. And you had a unique visitor on the stage one particular night. <laughs> we did indeed. Thank you for setting that up so beautifully. So Close Ties was a, a play that was very popular in Summerstock for a couple of years. It, it came and went fairly quickly. But it was intense. this intense family drama where... Grandma has to go into a nursing home and the family is so upset. And I was playing the boyfriend of the daughter. And towards the end of the play, she's crying in my arms because she sobs, oh, poor grandma. And so I'm there comforting her. And, and it was literally, as you said, summer stock in a barn and uh, out in the middle of all these pastures and farmlands and everything. And so it was the towards the end of the summer stock season. And the apprentices and everyone, they were just totally fried. They were absolutely exhausted. So it's closing night. And at intermission, they had opened, unlocked and opened the loading dock doors to facilitate the changeover of the set. So, so I'm playing this climactic scene where she's crying in my arms. Like, Shh, it'll be okay. Your, your grandma's going to be okay. They, they'll take care of it. It's all right. It's all right. So I'm playing this scene and she's crying into my chest. And all of a sudden in the wings, I see a cow that has come on from the pasture next door and is heading towards the stage. Oh, goodness gracious. <laughs> you're seeing this cow right there, like not 20 feet away from me. And all of a sudden, about six apprentices are like, and <laughs> trying to push this cow back. And so all of a sudden you're hearing, mm. I mean, that cow wanted to come on stage. <laughs> oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. <laughs> how I got through that one, how we got through the rest of the show is totally beyond me. How did the audience respond? They didn't quite know what was going on. I mean, they could just hear strange things backstage. They couldn't actually see the cow, <laughs> but they just heard a lot of strange noises. They're like, but this is this climactic moment of this play is very peculiar. <laughs> right. These sound effects are very <laughs> odd <laughs> or very lifelike. Like, oh, very. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, oh it, it my was, gosh. Uh, th that was not one of my finer moments when I was about to share the stage with a cow. Yes, 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 I would imagine so. And so were steps taken to prevent further animals from joining the... Well, yes, production? I mean, the, the apprentices learned not to open the loading dock doors at intermission. Now, when it comes to, to summer stock and doing these, I mean, th this is kind of where we all kind of cut our teeth as actors. And, uh, and so with these kind of experiences... What did that teach you or propel you as you went further in your career and then, of course, being a director? You know, you kind of learn to um, to just, as an actor, to just kind of roll with anything. I mean, I, I was a couple years uh, prior to that, I was doing a production of Our Town at uh, the American Shakespeare Theater, directed by Michael Kahn, a lovely production. That's where I got my equity card. 
And in the final scene, the uh, it was a hot summer night, and even though it was indoors, um, there were a lot of moths that got into the theater, and of course were buzzing around the stage lights and very attracted to the stage lights. And and in the third act, where all the mourners are sitting there on stage, very formally, you know, and uh, <laughs> one of them, a moth flew right into his mouth. Oh, oh! And he opened his mouth to say a line, and then how? And then I, I, he just held it there for as long as he could, and then I think ultimately he had to swallow it. <laughs> uh, why didn't he blow it out? Like, what? oh gosh, oh gosh! <laughs> he didn't want to disrupt the scene, you know. <laughs> oh, the things we do. Yeah, I will say that as much as acting is about taking on a character, learning that character, learning the lines, you know, being very obviously not machine like, but but knowing things in a certain order so that you can do them time and time again, there is still a bit of free improv that has to be incorporated into it. So you're kind of ready for a missed line or, you know, someone doesn't make it on stage or, you know, all these things that can happen. Oh, boy. One of my favorite ones, Patrick, and it's become absolutely legendary. And I, I say favorite in quotes, um, is that I was directing a production of The Cherry Orchard at the York in uh, Off-Broadway, and it was a wonderful cast. It was Penny Fuller and Cynthia Nixon and Merle Louise and David Canary, this wonderful all-star cast. And uh, in the third act of The Cherry Orchard, uh, Madame is giving a ball on the night that her beloved Cherry Orchard is being sold at auction because she's frittered away all of her money. So Penny Fuller is out there on stage as Madame, and uh, one of the turning points is when uh, Cynthia Nixon is Anya, the youngest daughter, comes on and says, uh, a man in the kitchen just said the cherry orchard has been sold. Sold to whom? And it propels the rest of the action forward. Well, dear, sweet, totally reliable Cynthia Nixon, for whatever reason, missed her cue. And so Penny Fuller is out there and she's fanning herself and swaying to the orchestra and dabbing her brow and pouring herself another glass of punch. And <laughs> for what seemed like an eternity... Finally, the ditzy girl playing the kitchen maid, thinking I'll save the day, runs on and says, I just heard backstage that somebody bought the cherry orchard. <laughs> yeah. Just, yeah. And and Penny Fuller sort of went <laughs> to keep from laughing hysterically. And and it's actually become a legendary theater story. And Penny said, You have no idea, Luke, how many people have told me that story, not knowing that it happened to me. How funny. Oh my gosh, that's so funny. Yeah, believe me, I, I've had my missed cues and I've of been course. on stage as you're waiting for the actor to. I mean, so yeah, we've all been there. Oh my gosh, that's so funny. <laughs> and yet we keep on keeping on. Exactly. <laughs> we don't know how to do anything else. Oh my gosh. Oh, Luke, this has been so enjoyable. So great meeting you. It's been delightful. I know it's been a little back and forth getting this uh, set up, but I'm glad we finally were able to make it happen today. I am too. And and you ask wonderful questions and you're a delightful interviewer and you just made this such a pleasure, Patrick. Thank you so much. Thanks a lot for joining Luke, Yankee, and me today. And remember, you can get access to bonus content like Luke sharing an audition story where he was behind the table and told an actor to make stronger choices, and the surprising turn of events that followed. Just go to whyillnevermakeit.com and click subscribe to get more of our conversation. You can also find that link in the show notes. Well, that about does it for me. I'm your host, Patrick Oliver-Jones, in charge of writing, editing, and producing this podcast. 
with Maria Clara Ribeiro as co-producer. Why I'll Never Make It is a production of WinMe Media, with background music used in this episode by Blue Dot Sessions and John Bartman. Be sure to join me next time as we talk more about Why I'll Never Make It. I have a delicious story about Men of La Mancha, which you will truly appreciate. So I'm I'm directing this big uh, actress fun tribute to Hal Holbrook. And Hal Holbrook replaced Richard Kiley on, I don't know if you know that. Oh, yes, that's right. And, you know, he didn't sing it as well as Kylie, but he acted it very well and he got away with it. So, and it was most of the original cast, including Irving Jacobson, who was the original Sancho. So they're doing the death scene and it's, it's his opening night and he's terribly nervous. And Hal Holbrook has made the decision when he dies to die with his mouth open. So Irving Jacobson is up there crying over his body and he's really crying and the snot is flowing and the mucus and everything. And a big blob of mucus goes right into Hal Holbrook's mouth. (laughs) And he's just like, well, what am I going to do? I'm supposed to be dead. And he said, so let this be a lesson to all you young actors. If you ever have a death scene, die with your mouth closed. Practicality, right? Sometimes it's not about the craft or the art. It's just about don't get spit in your mouth. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Or moths. (laughs) Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the Rise Theater Directory, a program of maestro music. Rise is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theater professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise hello it is ryan and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day couldn't we just to make up for things like sitting in traffic doing the dishes counting your steps you know all the mundane stuff that is why i'm such a big fan of chumba casino chumba casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime anywhere with daily bonuses that should brighten your day a little actually a lot so sign up now at chumbacasino.com That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.